Okay, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this wonderful, beautiful day that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And Lord, as we come into this Christmas season, we do thank you that it's not all about ho, 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 but it's about who, who, who. And we thank you for the who of Christmas, which is our Lord Jesus Christ without whom we can do nothing and we would be nothing because he is not only our creator, but he is our redeemer. And now, Lord, I would just help ask that you would help us to focus on what your spirit has to teach us through your holy word, for we pray in Christ's blessed name. Amen. The main theme, by the way, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you well know, we'll be looking at verses 10 to 12, trying to wrap up the Beatitudes, which has been a wonderful study, a blessed study. Anytime you study the Beatitudes, you're in for a real special treat, and uh, that certainly has been true in my life studying them. I've been very, very convicted, but I've also been enriched by what I've learned. And we have seen that the main theme of the Sermon Beatitudes is happiness through holiness, or blessed are the righteous. Each of the eight Beatitudes deals in one form or another with the subject of righteousness. The first two Beatitudes, which were poverty of spirit and mournfulness, have to do with sensing our own unrighteousness. Then the following five Beatitudes, which were meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, and peacemaking, those five deal with seeking and reflecting God's righteousness. So the first two dealt with sensing our own un unrighteousness, and then the next five were seeking God's righteousness. And now we come to the last beatitude, the persecution beatitude, which has to do with the believer's willingness to suffer for sake of God's righteousness. So if I had an overhead, which again I do not, you would have two Two are dedicated to sensing our own unrighteousness. Five, seeking God's righteousness. And one, suffering for God's righteousness. So the entire idea behind uh, being truly blessed, which means truly approved by God, and thus inwardly content, which is what joy or happiness is really all about, inward contentment, to be truly blessed is to be righteous regardless of the cost. And the cost is what we come to now in our look at Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, which let's look at together as I read them. Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We come to the Beatitude, which I've entitled Persecuted, or subtitled what? If you're looking at your lesson, it is what? Lesson number, I forgot, 32? We're on 32? Okay. Um, suffering. I've subtitled it Suffering. Pardon? Happy are the, oh yeah, that's the title of our message. Happy are the hated and harassed. As we come now to this final and longest sermon Beatitude, we come once again to a sacred paradox. Remember, the Beatitudes are the sacred paradoxes of Scripture, or the divine paradoxes. 
something that from the world's perspective seems to be a contradiction of itself, truth standing on its head. There is likewise a glorious mystery about this last beatitude because it involves the correlation between being persecuted and having joy. Now that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? The crowning feature of a happy person is persecution, believe it or not, but it's true. And I'm going to read you some accounts in this study that are going to show you that it definitely is true. I don't think some of us even know, can even touch the hem of the garment when it comes to what some Christians have encountered persecution-wise in this country. We are not really persecuted like they are in other countries, although there are different forms of persecution. But the crowning feature of a happy person is persecution. Those who heard the Lord Jesus, now just put yourself in their sandals, those that were standing around the sermon, on the, the mount there looking over the Sea of Galilee and heard the Lord Jesus speak these words for the very first time must have really been utterly shocked, just totally amazed when they heard what he said. How could those who are verbally reviled, falsely accused or slandered, physically tortured, and even in many cases put to death, how could they possibly rejoice in all that and, yet, and even do it with exceeding Gladness. They must have been shocked. To hear. I mean, it was shocking to hear, you know, the, the poor are happy and all the other things. Those that mourn are going to be comforted, all the other paradoxes that, that he spoke. But this one had to be the most shocking of all. And it's, so it has been stated by many commentators that the reason that the Lord Jesus expanded this, uh, this beatitude, it is the longest, you notice, of all of them. The others only take one verse. It, it consists of three verses. And the reason that he repeated this beatitude, notice he said the word blessed twice. He says it in verse 10, and he says it again in verse 11. He repeats himself. He says, blessed are they which are persecuted. He uses the word persecute or persecuted three times. And he says, blessed are they which are persecuted. And then he says over again, blessed are ye when men shall revile and persecute you. Why he repeats and expands this is because uh, it was such a shocking statement. And maybe they didn't get it the first time, so he had to repeat himself. He, um, it also probably means that there's a double blessing if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because he says, blessed are twice. So there's a double blessing connected with those who are persecuted. And he made this beatitude more personal than the other ones. If you will notice, he went from using the third person pronoun. In all the other beatitudes, he says either they, blessed are they, for theirs, he uses a third person pronoun, um, and he even does it in verse 10, the first verse of this last beatitude, but then he switches to using the more direct second personal pronoun, you and ye, in verses 11 and 10. You see what I'm talking about? In verse 10 he says, blessed are they, and then in verse 11 he says, blessed are ye, when men shall revile you. So all of these factors, not only that he repeated himself, but that he expanded and that he went from the third person to the second person. All of these factors, plus the fact that this is also the last beatitude, the final beatitude in the progression that speaks of spiritual maturity. Remember how we said it's in the just perfect order? As you mature in Christ, you, you advance down the scale, and this is the final one. All of these things tell us, tell us of its importance to us as kingdom citizens and its importance for us to understand the beatitude of being persecuted for righteousness sake. 
The Christian may have made his peace with God, which is what we looked at last week in the peacemaker beatitudes, but that does not necessarily mean that he is going to have peace with or in the world, does it? Just because we've made peace with God does not mean we're going to have peace. Actually, we really shouldn't have peace with this world or in this world. The eighth beatitude tells us of the sobering fact that those with the Spirit's power and guidance who are faithfully living out the righteous virtues of the first seven beatitudes will be, to some degree or another, and at some time or another, what? Persecuted. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer, not might suffer, shall suffer persecution. Second Timothy 3.12. I woke up with a really sore throat this morning, so if you notice I'm swallowing a lot. That's I don't think water will help. It's just, you know, that thick, awful, nasty feeling in my throat. So don't get too close to me today either. <laughs> the one who is living out the previous seven Beatitudes will not be popular with the world. Shouldn't expect to be popular with the world because the light of his testimony will be exposing the evil hearts of the unsaved. His light will be stripping away its cloak of sin. And they don't like that, do they? Those out in the world involved in their, their various little wickednesses and their sins, they don't like light to shine on their darkness. And as we said before, they don't like, like salt on the sting of their wounds. And so we should not even expect to be accepted and liked by the world. The believer in Christ, whether he likes it or not, and really we should like it, we are living in direct, opposition to Satan, who is, of course, the prince of this world, the god of this world with a small g. He's the prince of darkness. We're in opposition to him and to his whole world system, this wicked world system. When the believer presents the beauty of the love and the holiness of Jesus Christ, he draws people away from the kingdom of darkness. And therefore, the prince of darkness is aroused as a, a roaring lion. And he wants to come after that Christian and do what? Devour him. He wants to destroy his testimony. So under Satan's inspiration, men will do all that they possibly can to hurt, destroy, or remove those imbued with the spirit of Christ. Now, although the character of persecution changes with the government in control, and changes with the times, there are still three basic forms of persecution, and they are physical, verbal, and slanderous, which I guess is also a verbal form. But let's talk, first of all, about physical persecution, what man can do to the body. <clears throat> Jesus said to his disciples, and this is in John 15, verses 18 to 20, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He said, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute, they will also persecute you. He was warning his disciples, his apostles ahead of time. You know, they persecuted me, don't expect any different 
and what they're going to treat you. They're going to treat you as they treated me. They're going to persecute you. The servant is not greater than his master. Um, It's always been this way. Anita was talking about the book of Genesis all the way back to Cain and Abel. The one born after the flesh will persecute the one born after the spirit. Isn't that what we saw when we studied uh, not only Cain and Abel, but when we studied uh, Ishmael, born after the flesh, persecuting his brother Isaac, who was born after the spirit. Now, all the previous Beatitudes, the seven Beatitudes we've looked at already, dealt with the inner qualities and the inner attitudes of the Christian. But this last one alone has to do with what happens externally to the kingdom citizen, to the Christian. However, there is an inner attitude even in it. Although it is really telling about what happens to us externally, there is an inner attitude also involved in the persecution beatitude because it involves the believer's willingness to face the persecution and abuse for the Lord's sake. You know, we have to have this willingness that we will have the right attitude when we are persecuted. You you know, you as a Christian can go through life and never be persecuted if you don't live godly in Christ Jesus. If you just compromise and conform and go with the flow, you're not going to really suffer any persecution. But we have to, so we have to be willing to be Christ-like. And when we are Christ-like, we will be persecuted. So it's the attitude that says, I will live for Christ regardless of the cost to me personally. I will do and I will say what I must for his glory. You know, die to self. Whatever the cost is, I'm willing. You know, we'll learn later on in our study of the life of Christ that we need to count the cost ahead of time. Are we willing to pay the price? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That needs to be the attitude right there. Uh, it's uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, which is probably the all-time famous commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, um, says this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, quote, this beatitude tests our ideas as to what the Christian is. The Christian is like his Lord, and this is what our Lord said about him. Quote, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. End of quote. That's what the Lord said, remember? Woe to you if all men speak well of you. And then Dr. Jones goes on and he says, and yet is not our idea of what we call the perfect Christian nearly always that he is a nice, popular man who never offends anybody and is so easy to get on with? You know, that's what a lot of people think a Christian is, just a nice, real nice, easygoing person. But if this beatitude is true, that is not the real Christian because the real Christian is a man who is not praised by everybody. They did not praise our Lord, and they will never praise the man who is like him. To be Christian, ultimately, is to be like Christ. And one can never be like Christ without being entirely changed. We must get rid of the old nature that hates Christ and hates righteousness. We need a new nature that will love these things and love him and thus become like him. If you try to imitate Christ, which is what the false prophets did, the world will praise you. But if you become Christ-like, true Christian, it will hate you. End of quote. thought there was a lot of truth in what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say there. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about physical persecution, but let's move on to verbal abuse, second um, form of persecution. The Lord said to his, his men, 
that they would be reviled, that the believer would be reviled. He would have, in other words, the Greek word speaks of insults cast at him. And literally, it means that they would be cast in his teeth. The word reviled in the Greek means that insults would be cast in one's teeth. So the sense of the word, really, is that insults are thrown in the Christian's face. Persecution has often been physical. We know that as the bloody history of the church tells us. That's often been physical. But frequently, and maybe even more so, the persecution that the believer encounters is a verbal harassment and also social ostracism. That's what we, at least in this country, face more than physical persecution. I don't know if anybody in here has ever been beat up or anything because you're a Christian. Most of the persecution we encounter is verbal or, um, you know, it's just that we're ostracized from society. The word persecuted, as I mentioned earlier, is mentioned three times in these three verses. And it comes from a word which has as its root meaning the idea of being pursued and chased. But the best meaning of all is harassed. And that's why I entitled this lesson, Happy Are the Hated and Harassed. That's the best meaning of the word persecuted, harassed. The Christian may have insults cast upon him, not only by the world, but oftentimes, and this is even more painful, I would say, by one's own family members and friends. You know, verbal abuse can actually be more painful coming, coming from those we love than physical abuse that would come from those that we don't really know, you know, that don't really know us. And how many of you would agree with that? I definitely would. The verbal abuse can be far more painful. I know from personal experience with my own family, not my children's, you know, but my, my parents' family. And um, I know that some of you who perhaps are married to um, an unsaved man, a lot of Christian women take a lot of abuse at home, verbal abuse, because of their, their testimony for Christ. And I encourage any of you who are unequally yoked and are in that situation, and I can empathize with you because I was for five and a half years as well, but uh, there is a, a book I recommend in the notes by Joe Barry called Beloved Unbeliever, I think is the title of it. Make sure you read the notes because I want to really stress to any of you in that situation to understand and obey the First Peter 3 principle about your silent witness to your husband. Very, very important that you win him over, not with your words, but with your quiet, submissive testimony. Okay, let's talk third about false accusations. Whereas physical persecution and verbal abuse are direct forms of suffering, you know, there's something that are done directly to the believer for righteousness sake, of course. False accu accusations, or what we could call slander, are generally made about us behind, behind our backs. <laughs> they are whispered to others. And often we do not have an opportunity, therefore, to face our accusers to give a real answer for what we're being accused of because those accusations aren't made directly to us. They're usually whispered behind our backs. We might know about them, but we just don't really have an, ap an opportunity to face our, our accuser. So they're indirect. <clears throat> and this makes it really much more difficult for the Christian 
to defend himself, and there is greater opportunity for the accusation to spread before he can then halt the destruction that it is doing to his testimony. There has been a lot of this kind of accus false accusation that has taken place about believers over the centuries. I think back to the first century when Nero actually set fire to Rome himself and yet falsely accused the believer, the Christians of having set that fire and therefore they were terribly persecuted because of that. Um, they used to accuse Christians of being cannibals. That was a false accusation. They misunderstood, you know, the eating of the flesh and blood of, of Jesus Christ. They misunderstood that that was just totally spiritually speaking and accused the Christians of being cannibals. They also accused the Christians of having uh, sex orgies at their love feasts. So there has been a lot of, of uh, false accusation made to the church and to individual believers over the centuries. There has, however, there has never, ever been one who walked among men who was more cruelly slandered, falsely accused than who? Than the very Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. He was hated without a cause, and yet he went as calmly, without a word, you know, as, as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before it, its shears. He, he didn't revile when he was reviled. He set the perfect example for his followers you emulate to to follow when he did this to, you know he taught us how to meet the attacks of evil and not faint under them and he certainly was well acquainted with being misunderstood even by those who were the closest to him he was misunderstood and he was misrepresented by men and so nobody knows better than him that even when reviled and persecuted and slandered it is possible to to rejoice and to be exceeding glad as long as we don't sin in how we handle uh, persecution of whatever form, there is no power, whether satanic or human, as long as we don't sin, that can stain the soul. You know, slander might darken our character. I mean, our reputation. You got that wrong. It might darken our reputation, but it cannot stain our character. Remember the little saying, reputation is what men think we are, character is what God knows we are. So slander might harm our reputation, but it cannot stain our character. Just remember that. Let me read what Dr. John MacArthur has to say a little bit about this. He says, it is in the demands of this beatitude that many Christians break down in their obedience to the Lord, because here is where the genuineness of their response to the other beatitudes is most strongly tested. It is here where we are most tempted to compromise the righteousness we have hungered and thirsted for. It is here where we find it convenient to lower God's standards to accommodate the world and thereby avoid conflicts and problems that we know obedience will bring. But God does not want his gospel altered under pretense of its being less demanding, less righteous, or less truthful than it is. He does not want witnesses who lead the unsaved into thinking that the Christ life costs nothing. A synthetic gospel, a man-made seed, produces no real fruit. I think that's one reason why persecution is at the end of the list maturity-wise. This is where many people break down. They simply do not want to, to be persecuted in whatever form, 
falsely accused, you know, slanderous, verbal abuse, or physical abuse, and therefore they, they compromise so that they don't suffer persecution. And that's so wrong. That just weakens not only your testimony, but it weakens the, the, the body of believers. It weakens the church. Now, there are other subtle ways in which believers endure a, a very real type of suffering for righteousness' sake that don't necessarily fall very neatly into any one of these three categories that we've already looked at. Uh, for example, there may be that faithful, um, conscientious employee at the workplace who is repeatedly passed over for higher positions simply because he doesn't laugh with the guys, you know, when they're having their jokes and he doesn't go out with them afterwards to, to have a couple beers, you know, and so he's just continuously passed over because he just doesn't fit in. That's a form of persecution, is it not? And there, is, uh, there may be the Christian housewife who gives up a career in order to stay at home with her children and teach them godly principles. I mean, she's looked down on very often by other women out there in the secular world as though she was someone from the dark ages. Have you ever encountered that? I do. You mean you don't work? You just stay at home? And then you get that little look, you know, those rolled eyes. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing with your time? <sighs> there may be that Christian student who takes his Bible very seriously and is often mocked by his secular teachers, especially... Well, I, I, could, I was going to say especially at the university level, but it's even coming down into the high schools and the, and the grammar schools, the elementary schools. Um, he, he may be excluded in, from conversations among his peers because he refuses to compromise with sin. You know, when he, he feels sort of isolated. You know, that's another definite form of persecution. We can encounter a form of suffering for righteousness' sake by the, by the smirks and the under-the-cuff comments that you know are going on sometimes when, when you're around unbelievers, or perhaps you just even experienced some of this at Thanksgiving time if you were with um, relatives who aren't saved. You know, you say, well, can we have a grace before we eat, and you get the, the rolled eyes and all that sort of thing. You might even have encountered it regarding where you went to school if you went to a, a Christian university or where you sent your children to school. I know we sent all three of our children to, to nothing but Christian schools. They went to, certainly went to a lot of different ones. This daughter's the only one that stayed to one school. The others moved around, but, but we certainly get a lot of rolled eyes when they say, well, where did your children graduate from? You say, Bob Jones University. Oh, you can imagine what you get when you say that. Right, Stephanie? <laughs> So there are other forms of persecution. Many godly pastors today face persecution for their standards of holiness and endure all kinds of criticism from the, from the community. Sadly, they even receive a lot of criticism sometimes from their own congregation members. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, did you know that he suffered badly? One of the greatest preachers who ever lived, but he suffered badly from bouts of depression. And it was depression caused primarily over the criticism that he received from, from his own congregation. And on one such occasion, his wife wrote out the eight sermon beatitudes that we have been 
discussing. She wrote them out in large old English script, and somehow or another she tacked them to the ceiling over their bed so that every morning, first thing when he woke up, he, and that's a good idea, isn't it? <laughs> he saw, he saw the, the eight Beatitudes, and every night when he lay down to go to sleep, the last thing he saw was the eight sermon Beatitudes. So she was very wise because she wanted him to remember that everyone who lived a godly, Christ-like, uh, Christ-honoring life, a beatific life, a life of holiness, righteousness, there I go again, will encounter what? Persecution. And I hope that helped him. <laughs> Jesus said that we should not grieve over any of these types of abuse or harassment, whether they're physical or mental, social, direct, indirect, whether they're subtle, whether they're not so subtle, whatever. What he said we should do is actually the total opposite. Rather than be sad about them and grieve about them, and I have to remind myself of this all the time because I do have a hard time with it, especially coming from my own family members. But he said we should do what? Rejoice and do it with exceeding gladness, which literally in the Greek means skip and run and jump for joy. <laughs> now that's hard to do sometimes, especially when you're being persecuted. However, now be warned, this is, this is the critical key with all of this. We can suffer verbal abuse, and we can suffer false accusations and physical harms for many other reasons than for righteousness' sake. Don't misunderstand some of your persecution if it's coming from your own mistakes. I know some of what I suffered was definitely from some of my own mistakes. It's sad to say that many Christians are persecuted more for their lack of righteousness than they are for living righteously. Often they are rejected because of their rude, judgmental insensitivity to people or because of their obnoxious lack of tactfulness. I've been there, done that. Or because of their pride. And you, th you all think of times maybe in your life or people maybe who witnessed you before you became a Christian who went, around, went about it all wrong and uh, were persecuted be because they just weren't beatific. Remember, if we're beatific, if we're poor in spirit and we understand our own simple nature, we're going to come to everybody in meekness and love, etc. We'll have the right attitude. Many people are disliked and criticized because uh, by others because they say one thing and do another. That's the problem the Pharisees had. Said one thing and completely did another. Or if they say that they serve the king, the king of kings, and they are irresponsible servants and lazy and incompetent, the world says, well, that's what a Christian's like. Or if they're hypocritical or whatever, you know. We have to, the reason that we're persecuted is because, the reason we're Persecuted righteously is when we live righteously, when we're Christ-like. Being persecuted for Christ's name's sake involves being persecuted for being godly, for being like the Lord Jesus himself. Furthermore, the persecution beatitude is not a reference to every hardship and every problem that Christians encounter. I mean, we all encounter all kinds of trials in, in life that are not related to being persecuted for righteousness sake. For example, a lot of, every one of us encounters the loss of a loved one. Well, that is not being, you know, suffering for righteousness sake. That's just something that naturally happens to everybody. 
uh, we may suffer a financial, financially, or we may suffer um, sicknesses, like I'm dealing, dealing with right here, or something even, you know, obviously a lot worse than a sore throat. But none of those are what is included under being persecuted for righteousness sake. Those are just trials and troubles, through which we learn many things, of course. If there is one continuous experience of the people of God, it is that of persecution, however. In every age, every single age, believers have been reviled and persecuted. Yet through their afflictions, the knowledge of God has spread to others. Every true disciple of the Lord Jesus is to step into the ranks and carry forth the same work, knowing that his enemies can do nothing against the truth. When the godly and eloquent Stephen was stoned to death by the uh, instigation of the Sanhedrin, there was no loss at all to the cause of the gospel. When the glorious light of heaven shined on his face and in his last words, just like the Savior, uh, the people around there heard a prayer for the forgiveness of those who were actually stoning him to death, there was a sharp arrow of conviction that shot right through the heart of a particularly arrogant young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. And that young man became a chosen vessel of God to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles as well as the children of Israel. Throughout history, the efforts of Satan to destroy the incorruptible seed of the word of God by maligning and reproaching and persecuting the children of God has failed. There was a man named Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So no matter how much Satan has tried to persecute and destroy the church, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The more he just, you know, that's what we really need in this country is a little more persecution. Because the more persecuted a uh, country is, the more the church flourishes. Like is going on in China today. It's amazing. The underground church in China, right? Teresa has just recently been. You need to share all that with us one day. Maybe if Casey has a baby in February. You can <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, it's through such sufferings of the righteous name of Christ that, that Christ himself is magnified and souls are saved. So it's a good thing. While the Lord Jesus has not promised the kingdom citizen exemption from suffering, he has promised to be with him in that suffering. When we find ourselves in the midst of the fiery furnace, the Lord will be there with us. And if that should happen to us here in this country, that's one thing we can count on. The Lord will be through, with, there with us even as he was with those faithful young men in Babylon when they were thrown into that fiery furnace. Everybody always asks, where was Daniel? He would have been in there with, with them, so he must have been out of town on some kind of business for the king. <clears throat> the Lord has also promised that his grace is sufficient for us and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. In every single age, all the way back to, as I said, Cain and Abel, Satan has harassed and persecuted and tortured and put to death the people of God. However, in all of these things, even, you know, even in the ultimate, even in dying, they have become conquerors. We are more than conquerors, aren't we, in Christ Jesus. Satan and all his dupes might abuse and kill the body, 
but they cannot touch the life that is hid with Christ in God. They could chain them behind prison walls, but he could not bind up their spirit and their joy. Why? Because they could look beyond the shame, just as their Lord did. They could look beyond the shame to the glory that was set before them. And they could say, as it says in Romans 8.18, I reckon, must, Paul must have been a southerner, I, I reckon, I should have Terry read that. <laughs> How do you say that? I reckon. <laughs> that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And they could say this. They could say, our light affliction, affliction, even when it was heavy, and it was sometimes, oh, if you read what Paul went through, it, was not any, it wasn't anything but light. But he said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. The reward for those of us who give up or are willing to give up everything in order to live righteously is that they gain everything. If you're willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ, you will ultimately gain everything. And that's his promise. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he begins and he ends the Beatitudes with the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every believer is rewarded during this life with the things of this world. But each and every believer is rewarded in this present life with the strength and with the comfort and with the peace and with the inward joy of the Lord. We might not have things material, materially, but actually even the poorest of us does in comparison to people in other countries. But we are definitely all blessed with those things I just said, his peace, his joy, his comfort, and his strength. So the reward, actually, for being a kingdom citizen begins here. It begins right here in this world. When the Lord appeared in ancient times to Abraham, he said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Present tense, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. So we're rewarded in the here and now but we are also rewarded with the blessed assurance that no service no sacrifice for Jesus Christ will ever be in vain you give up a lot of time and serve are you going to go help Marilyn with that hands helping hands ministry uh, whatever you do for the Lord your labor in the Lord is not in vain and last but not least we will be rewarded we are rewarded with the confidence that we have in knowing we have an eternal home in heaven where all injustices and all you know those false accusations will be straightened out all tears will forever be removed even though Paul the Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison and he could he he, and he saw that the, the gospel was being spread and he saw all that awaited him in heaven I mean how would you feel if you're in prison chained for your testimony for Christ and yet could you write what he wrote he wrote these words I therein do rejoice yea and will rejoice Paul certainly had a Christ-like attitude about all of his sufferings and all that he went through how many of you remember the words of Jim Elliot the 20th century martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ those famous words he said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep 
in order to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, there was a saintly Scottish preacher named Samuel Rutherford who spent time in prison in Aberdeen, not Aberdeen, North Carolina, <laughs> Aberdeen, Scotland, and he wrote from that prison cell and said that he, uh, he was taught more about Christ's love in his six months in prison for the cause of righteousness' sake than he had in all of his previous years of preaching. Why can we rejoice? Well, we can rejoice for who we are in Christ. If we are being persecuted because of our attempted faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, we should really want to thank our persecutors for demonstrating to us proof of our salvation. We should really thank them for complimenting us by persecuting us. You see, because in, in, uh, in, in persecuting us, they are really seeing Christ in us. And so that's a wonderful compliment. Um, let me tell you about a Romanian pastor. There was a Romanian pastor in recent times, and he describes how he was imprisoned and tortured mercilessly and yet experienced joy. Locked in solitary confinement, he had been summoned by his captors who cut chunks of flesh from his body and was then returned to his cell where he was starved. Yet in the midst of this sadism, 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 there were times when the joy of Christ so overcame him that he would pull himself up and shuffle about the cell in holy dance. So remarkable was his joy that on his release from prison and his return to his home, he chose to fast the first day in memorial to the joy he had known in prison. So we can rejoice for who we are in Christ. We can rejoice in persecution for what we can become. Oftentimes you read of those who are persecuted for, the, for Christ's sake, and uh, they become great witnesses for Christ in their persecution, just like Paul. He, he, every Roman uh, guard that was ever chained to Paul certainly heard the gospel message, and many of the Praetorian guard got saved. So we can become a great witness for him. We can learn many things during times of persecution, many, many things. We can learn about our own weaknesses, and we can learn, of course, about his sufficiency. We can also rejoice and be exceeding glad because of where we are going. Even if we are martyred for our faith, it means that we will just get where we're going that much quicker. <laughs> and Paul said that it is a place far better in Philippians 1.23. Heaven is far better than this world. And that's an understatement. Suffering verbal harassment, slanderous lies, tortuous phys physical pain for righteousness sake is cause for rejoicing because it means that we are heavenly citizens. This world is not our permanent home. Also, we can rejoice in our persecution because of what awaits us there. Not only where we're going, but what awaits us there. The Lord Jesus told the persecuted believer, for great is your reward. What does scripture tell us? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. There is the beauty and there is the wonder and there is the mystery of heaven to look forward to. There are the rewards there to look forward to. Not just crowns, 
that we cast at the Lord's feet, but also the fruit of our lives to look forward to seeing. You know, the treasures that we have laid up in heaven, the dividends on our heavenly investments to rejoice in. And of course, they're all, are all our, our saved, departed loved ones and friends to see again. And uh, that's a great anticipation ahead of us. And also millions and millions of new faces and personalities to meet when we get there. But greatest of all, there is the Lord Jesus Christ himself to meet face to face. So, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. That's in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. The excerpts that are about to be read come from a book which is entitled The Heavenly Man by Paul Hathaway. It is the remarkable true story of Chinese Christian brother Yun, Y-U-N, who spent years in prison for his uh, Christian faith in China. Okay, let me just read a little bit of one experience when he was in prison. He says, That day, two new officers came to interrogate me. I refused to talk. I just closed my eyes and lay down. One of the men kicked me and shouted, Yun, you will speak today. The other officer forced my eyelids open and said he was very, very sick and weak at this time. And he could hardly open his eyes. Forced my eyelids open and said, Look around, Yun. We have methods to deal with people like you. If you don't want to speak, we'll make you. This time they had brought various instruments of torture with them, including whips and chains. Another officer approached me with an electric baton. He turned the voltage up to the highest level and struck my face, head, and various parts of my body with it. Immediately, my body was filled with overwhelming agony as if a thousand arrows had pierced my heart. The Holy Spirit encouraged me with these scriptures from the Bible. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers, her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Another scripture. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 And James 1.12 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. By meditating on the word of God, the Lord strengthened me to endure. I realized my suffering, any suffering I was to go through was nothing compared to what Jesus had suffered for me and that no pain I could ever experience was beyond the understanding and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 4.15 The Lord didn't allow me to feel as much pain as I should have. The officers stood on my hands and my feet, electrocuting me again and again. They pulled my eyelids, lips, and ears, and other body parts to humiliate me. I still refused to speak. I was half, a half-dead pile of skin and bones lying motionless on the cold cement floor. 
Seeing their methods were not producing the desired results, they instructed Brother Lee to carry me to the prison's medical clinic. A short, fat man dressed in white, dressed in white entered the room and told the four guards who had accompanied me, please leave me alone as I examine Yun. After they left the room, the doctor told me, Yun, if you won't talk, I can make you talk. He smiled with an evil grin. This needle will help cure you of your problem. It will make you talk. The guards were called back in. They spread my hands and feet and held me down on the bed. Then they separated my fingers and held them palm down on a wooden board. The doctor took a large needle labeled number six from his bag. Starting with my left thumb, he jabbed the needle under my fingernails one at a time. I can't describe how I felt. It was the most excruciating agony I've ever experienced. And let me tell you, if you read this whole book, some of you probably can't handle it, but this man encountered an awful lot of torture. But he says this was the worst he'd ever experienced. Intense pain shot through my entire body. I couldn't help but cry out. Lapsing between consciousness and unconsciousness, I couldn't tell if I was in my body or separate from my body. By the time the doctor reached my middle finger, the Lord mercifully allowed me to faint and not feel the pain being afflicted on me. When I awoke, I had no feeling in either my hands or my fingers. I felt a terrible surging pain running through my entire body. Despite the cold weather, I was covered in sweat from head to toe. And it goes on and on and on. But what I want to read to you is after he was released from prison, what his comments were. Let's see if I should have marked that. Yeah, here it is. Okay. All right. This is after he was released, and he spent, I think, a total of four years, maybe, maybe longer than that, in prison. He says, There are many ways the Lord may lead a Christian during his or her life, but I'm convinced that the path of every believer will sooner or later include suffering. The Lord gives us these trials to keep us humble and dependent on him for our sustenance. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4.1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. I believe when suffering and pain increases, sinning decreases. I've certainly not yet reached the point of being done with sin. I still complain to the Lord when I suffer. How we mature as a Christian largely depends on the attitude we have when we're faced with suffering. Some try to avoid it or imagine it doesn't exist, but that will only make the situation worse. Others try to endure it grimly, hoping for relief. This is better, but falls short of the full victory God wants to give each of his children. The Lord wants us to embrace suffering as a friend. We need a deep realization that when we're persecuted for Jesus' sake, it is an act of God's blessing to us. This might sound impossible, but it is attainable with God's help. That is why Jesus said, Blessed are you when men insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, because great is your reward in heaven. We can grow to such a place in Christ where we laugh and rejoice when people slander us, because we know we are not of this world, but our security is in heaven. The more we are persecuted for his sake, the more reward we will receive in heaven. 
When people malign you, rejoice and be glad. When they curse you, bless them in return. When you walk through a painful experience, embrace it and you will be free. When you learn these lessons, there is nothing left that the world can do to you. God is my witness that through all the tortures and beatings I've received, I have never hated my persecutors, never. I saw them as God's instruments of blessing and his chosen vessels to purify me and make me more like Jesus. Sometimes Western visitors come to China and ask the house church leaders what seminary they attended. We reply jokingly, yet with underlying seriousness, that we have been trained in the Holy Spirit Personal Devotion Bible School, in other words, prison, for many years. Sometimes our Western friends don't understand what we mean, because then they ask, what materials do you use in this Bible school? And we reply, our only materials are the foot chains that bind us. and the leather whips that bruise us. In this prison seminary, we have learned many valuable lessons about the Lord and that we could never have learned from a book. We've come to know God in a deeper way. We know his goodness and his loving faithfulness to us. Christians who are in prison for the sake of the Lord are not the ones who are suffering. When people hear my testimony, they often say, you must have had a terrible time when you were in prison. And I respond, what are you talking about? I was with Jesus and had overwhelming joy and peace in his intimate presence. I just think of the millions of people who have encountered this <clears throat> in our century, well, 20th century, and even in this, they say more people have been persecuted for this sake of Christ and all the centuries put together and we just don't realize it, what's going on you read a book like this and you get so convicted he says the people who really suffer are those who have never experienced God's presence the way to have God's presence is by walking through hardship and suffering the way of the cross you may not be beaten or imprisoned for your faith but I am convinced each Christian will still have a cross to bear in his or her life. In the West, it may be ridicule, slander, or rejection. When you're faced with such trials, the key is not to run from them or fight them, but to embrace them as friends. When you do this, you'll not fail to experience God's presence and help. When a child of God suffers, you need to understand the Lord has allowed it. He has not forgotten you. The devil cannot snatch you away. Jesus made this beautiful promise to his children. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Mm -hmm.